0: Well, hello and welcome to the next chapter of our North New South Wales Sabbath School commentary. This week we are studying creation, Genesis as the foundation in line with this quarter's lesson studies on how to interpret the Bible. And this is part number eight in this quarter. So creation, Genesis as the foundation. When I think of Genesis being the foundation of our interpretation of scripture, I think of the fundamental tests for true and false prophets. And I think of the book of Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 that says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this, it is because there is no light in them. And the lesson that we learn from that test is that essentially, if a prophet or somebody does not agree with previous revelation or pre- previous inspiration from God, then it is because they're actually not in line with God because Jesus Christ and the Father are the same yesterday, today and forever. So we can be, tr- be sure that if we are seeing something that is not in line with the original inspired writings that we know that were given to Moses from God himself, then we can be sure that it's not of the true inspiration. The basic point that we're trying to make here is that... When we come across writings that are deemed to be inspired or a prophet that is claiming to be inspired by God, we can compare whatever it is that they're saying or whatever it is that's been written down with the original inspired word of God found in the book of Genesis as the foundation and determine whether or not it's in in line with um, inspiration from God as we know it previously. New inspiration is not there to take away from previous inspired text, but to add to it or to expand on it. Everything that comes after the book of Genesis is an expansion to the fundamental uh, principles and teachings. But even further to this point, there is a surprising amount of major teachings or doctrines that we have as Bible-believing Christians to be found in the book of Genesis. Just to give you a couple of examples, as was articulated in the lesson, we have the doctrine of the Sabbath, we have the doctrine of the health message, as Adam and Eve were given their appropriate diet, the plant-based and whole food diet that we now know is the most beneficial to our bodies. Or we also have the origin of evil, as found in Genesis chapter 3, and we we find in the same chapter uh, a prophecy about the seed that was to come, the Messiah and the plan of redemption. Um, So there is just a a multitude of uh, teachings and doctrines that we have um, that can find their source in these chapters. And it's just powerful to think that pretty much the basic framework for Christian belief system is found in the very first chapters of the very first book in the Bible. Moving into Sunday's lesson titled, In the Beginning it's interesting that in the first three words we have a very clear depiction of what existed before anything existed and it was just simply that god existed that before anything tangible ever came into being there was god for eternity past there's no origin of god it's just that in the beginning god was already there And not only that he was already there, but that he was also the origin of everything that we know in existence right now. It says there that he created the heavens and the earth. Now, it also doesn't clearly say exactly when it was that he created the heavens and the earth. It just says that he did. So while we are unable to pry into the eternity past before Heaven and earth were created. What we have been given in the Bible is clear indication that God was the one that started everything in motion. That There was a definitive time in the past in which we and our earth and everything that we know and are a part of was created. Now, taking this to a deeper level, it also indicates that God was there before time was created, because in these these next verses, in the days of creation, we find God creating time and the motion of celestial bodies which govern time. But the, the Bible clearly says that before these things were created, God existed. And therefore, whatever it looks like, we can be sure that God exists outside of time because he is the one that actually created it. Now, this just blows my mind when I consider the first chapter of the book of John as well and the first three verses that say that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And John is just emphasizing through repetition that Jesus being the word, as we find out in verse 14, that was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father. That John is just emphasizing by repetition here that he's saying all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He's repeating the fact to make it emphatic that Jesus is the creator and that this creator that existed outside of time and before creation was incarnate in the man Jesus Christ and that this is the God that sacrificed himself on behalf of fallen humanity. And I feel like if we could come to this realization more fully in our own psyche we would be saved so much questioning of our value or so much uh, insecurity about who we are or where we've come from. We were created by an infinite God who was outside of time and that same God is the one that stepped down. This is the, the God that hangs the worlds uh, upon nothing as the book of Psalms says and he says the same God who uh, became a created being. Uh, so that he could then uh, die in place of those who didn't deserve it or could never truly appreciate what had been done on their behalf. Following on to Monday's lesson, the days of creation, and there has been a lot of conjecture in the recent years of... Those that believe that somehow the theory of evolution and the ideology of creation can somehow be amalgamated or joined together and that they are actually um, synergistic rather than, you know, diametrically opposed. But aside from the fact that there is just no justification for a literal seven-day week if we do not have a literal seven-day creation... There is another interesting concept that I came across when I was listening to the the book compiled of all of A.T. Jones and Wagner's Lessons on Faith. In the book, there was a sermon by uh, Jones, I believe it was where he highlighted to the audience that if they did not believe that God had the capacity to speak and it would be done, then they were essentially evolutionists. And he drew a comparison between people who believe that that God created uh, everything in a literal six days, which at the time was just the norm. Every, everybody believed that God created in six days, and it's only in recent times that this has been sort of adulterated to to the random differing perspectives that people have on when or how, or how long it took God to create the world. But back in the day, everybody believed that concept. And so he used this concept to, uh, uh, I guess, clarify what it meant to live by faith. And what he essentially said was that if you believe that God speaks things into existence, then you are a creationist. But if you believe that God speaks and then slowly over time something develops or comes out of what God has said, then you're more of an evolutionist. And he said oftentimes people, they have this idea that when God promises something, they don't have it when they've claimed it, that it comes over time. But in reality, righteousness by faith is that we claim the promise of righteousness as it is right now, not as it will be into the future, and that we have the righteousness of Christ and that we are fully considered righteousness in the face of God on account of what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf in this very moment, not in some time in the distant future. And he used this also similarly to argue against those who, um, you know, claim that eventually they'll give up their uh, addictive substance or like smoking or, or whatever it was that was holding them back and that, over time, they would slowly get there on top of this habit. But in reality, he said, no, God says it is, and therefore it is done. And if we believe that God has that capacity, then why wouldn't he create things in a literal six days? similar to his work of creation, is his work of recreation. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, that in the twinkling of an eye in a moment at the last trumpet, we will put on immortality in that moment. It's not something that takes time. When God speaks, his word is done at that point in time. The Genesis account itself says that uh, he said, let there be light, and there was light. In that same moment it wasn't something that took a long period of time to develop or to come about uh, god doesn't need to take time to do these kinds of things so why would he and the practical application from this is that when god speaks a promise when god says something is so we need to believe it and act like it is so rather than just assuming that yes it's the case but then assuming that it's going to take a long period of time for him to fulfill those promises to help us to overcome those things in our lives that take us away from him or in the end will destroy us now further to the point of god being a god who creates things out of nothing and speaks them into existence and therefore can speak uh the fulfillment of his promises into our lives in an instant rather than over an indefinite period of time. The implications for questioning the literal or literality of the creation week also has some huge implications for us as Seventh-day Adventists who believe that the Seventh-day Sabbath is the memorial of time that God set apart when he created the world. And If so be that we believe that um, he created in seven literal days, then the Sabbath makes sense. But if so be that it took uh, millennia, then there is some cause for questioning as to whether or not the Sabbath is actually necessary. But we'll get into that on to Tuesday's lesson in just a moment. But for now, just finishing off a couple of other thoughts on the days of creation for Monday's lesson. So one thing that's always baffled me with this concept of there being seven indefinite periods of time that it took God to create the world that we now know is the complication that we run into when we consider that certain days in creation required the following day's creation for them to survive any length of time. So, for example, on day three, I believe it is, we have the creation of vegetation and plant life. And then on day four, we have the sun and the moon, which is created, leaving us in somewhat of a quandary when we consider how the process of photosynthesis that sustains the life of plants could be facilitated for those thousands of years or however many years you want to suggest that it took to continue. Finally, I think it's important to note how the Bible reiterates the literality of the day when it uses the term yom, which is the Hebrew word for day. And it's used consistently throughout the creation narrative for a literal day. And then not only that, but Moses, when he's writing the book, adds to the point when he says there was an evening and a morning Just to reiterate the fact that there was more than just the day, it was the evening and the morning. Just to really emphasize the point, which is, as you very well might know, a principle in biblical writings that they will repeat the same concept again and again to add emphasis now moving on to Tuesday's lesson, the Sabbath and Creation. We need to highlight a couple of things here in reference to the literality of the days of creation. So in Exodus chapter 20 and verses 8 through to 11 we find the command for humanity and well in this context specifically the Israelite nation to uphold the literal weekly Sabbath. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that Ellen White commented on regarding this was that she said the the week weekly cycle of seven literal days six for labor and the seventh for rest, which has been preserved down and through the biblical history, originated in the facts of the first seven days. And then she goes on to uh, question the infidel supposition. This is in Spiritual Gifts, volume three and page 91. And she says, following on from that, just skipping a little, little portion there, it charges God with commanding men to observe the week of seven literal days in commemoration of seven indefinite periods, which is unlike his dealings with mortals. And is an impeachment, of his wisdom, now basically what she 's saying is is if God created over an indefinite period of time he wouldn't allocate a weekly Sabbath for us to uphold to commemorate that indefinite period of time. It's inconsistent with the character of God, where he creates things that model himself or model the original. So, for example, when he creates man and woman and he sets up marriage, which we're also going to talk into in the next day's lesson, is that he creates it in likeness to himself, in likeness to the original, and very specifically in the actual commandment. It says, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and so therefore he Commands us for six days to work and then for the seventh to rest. So it's consistent with itself and consistent with the character of God. Further to this point, it makes sense that the Sabbath would be one of the key. Areas that are being attacked in the last days, in the sense that the Sabbath is a recognition of God as the Creator. So if I was the devil, I would be attacking the thing that that I guess draws our attention back to who we are in comparison with God. Whereas in the 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 Sunday Sabbath that is being um, pushed in the most recent uh, global warming agendas by Pope Francis in the Laudato Si' and in other areas as well, but published by the Vatican. Press in 2015, page 171, 172 and 173 says that the Jewish Sabbath is to be done away with because it was for the Jews, but It's also at the same time encouraging people to observe a day of rest to alleviate global warming. Now, the problem with this is that we're no longer glorifying the God of creation, but in essential nature, we are claiming to be the gods of the world, in the sense that we are the ones that can set which day and which day shouldn't be the day of rest for God's people. And that, as such, we have control over the world and we are the ones that dictate what should or shouldn't be done, It's subversive to the very authority of God and his creative power. And this lines up with human nature because this has always been the way. Humans replacing what it is that God has instituted for their own ways in the sense that they believe that they can do it better. For example Cain and Abel or for example Lucifer in heaven and the the situations that have come thereafter have never been good. And this is the problem. When we take things that God has set in motion or take things that God has set in place and we replace them with something that we believe is of a better nature. We effectively subvert God's character, subvert God's throne, and end up in strife. The answer to the global warming concern in the world today is not the observance of Sunday sacredness as much as it could be if we had a worldwide biblical Sabbath. But at the same time, we have obvious, obvious implications with controlling people's conscience and taking away their liberties for rights to religious freedom. But this is the thing with the Sunday sacredness. It takes away from the verse in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12, which says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The point I'm trying to make here is that Sunday sacredness in not only subverting God's character is a subversion of our own understanding of who we are in the sense that we don't recognize that we're created beings in the image of God and we are not the creators ourselves, and have the capacity to just chop and change things as we would like. But on top of that, that we actually are sanctified or purified, made holy by God, and the Sabbath significant of that fact as well. It's not just about acknowledging God as a creator, but also the God that is the recreator. He's the one that recreates us, and it inherently uh, implies that we require recreating, whereas setting aside the original Sabbath and focusing in on Sunday sacredness takes away from the fact that we actually require sanctification, or to be made holy, that we can somehow reach Holiness or reach righteousness in and of ourselves. But the Bible is very clear, and one verse in particular that comes to mind is Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that says, That the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? The Bible goes on to say in the verse thereafter that the Lord reads the heart and is the one that essentially knows how to fix it. And something else that I just wanted to point out regarding the Sabbath of creation in the Genesis account, we see that God does three things when He creates the Sabbath. Now, this is after the six days of creation, He's created everything else, but when He comes to the Sabbath, He does three major things. He says that That he blesses it in Genesis 2 verse 3. It also says that he rested in Genesis 2 verse 2. And then it also says that he sanctified it or set it apart for a holy use or made it holy, essentially. There is no other day in the Bible that receives these three designations. This is the thing. We get too focused on on tangible realities rather than on spiritual reality. You see this in the ministry of Jesus where the people that have just been fed the 5,000 find him on the other side of the, the sea and they come to him and they're like basically requesting for him to give them the bread always that he had given them the day before but he tries to draw their attention to spiritual things and you can see it that he just repeats himself as he says like no no, no you've, you've got to start striving for things of the spiritual um, sustenance rather than things of a physical sustenance this here is temporal this here is, is 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 passing away this is this is temporary and we need to get our focus on spiritual things and this is the same that we have a struggle with in our day-to-day lives we get so caught up in worrying about the created things the things that are, are put in place for yes for our sustenance here on this earth but these things are not here to be the only thing that absorbs our attention here, because there are things that are bigger than that. And this is what the Sabbath draws our attention to. This is why God highlights the Sabbath in these three ways and sets it as such an important part of a seven-day week. It's because it's to draw our attention to things of a spiritual nature. Otherwise, we'd get so caught up in the, the created things and the work of our hands and in the things that he's given us to, to be blessed by that we would not focus in on him, but now he's given us time apart from those things to rest from the tangible, to rest from the physical, and to focus in on the blessings that he has provided, and to focus in on the the sanctification in which he provides, the, the 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 holiness that he provides. Now Ellen White highlights this as well in the lesson in the great controversy. She is quoted as saying, the Sabbath lies at the very foundation of divine worship, because it teaches the great truth in the most impressive manner, and no other institution does this. The true ground of divine worship, now you get this, the true ground of divine worship, not of that on the seventh day merely, but of all worship is found in the distinction between the creator and his creatures. To clarify, that was actually J.N. Andrews that said that in the history of the Sabbath, chapter 27. But the point is clear, that the distinction between the creator and the creatures, the spiritual and the tangible, essentially, is the very essence of true worship and the book Great Controversy continues to say that that So long as the fact that he is our creator continues to be the reason why we should worship him, so long the Sabbath will continue as its sign and memorial. And that was Great Controversy, page 437. Moving on to Wednesday's lesson, talking about creation and marriage. Just as the the idea of the Sabbath draws our attention to the heavenly, to the spiritual, so does the idea of true and uh, principled marriage. But once again, it's no wonder that the devil has made special effort to destroy the idea of the biblical marriage, to destroy the idea of God's instituted means for people to learn what it means to be self-sacrificing in the same way that he is self-sacrificing for himself internal to the Godhead, as well as from him to his creatures. And one thing that I just couldn't help but make mention of is the idea that marriage is one of the only two institutions that came with Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden when they were evicted. It was marriage and it was the Sabbath. Those two things came with them from the Garden of Eden. And what I find very interesting about this is that God never gives us anything that would not be in our best interest to not have. And then on the flip side, God doesn't allow us to have anything that would not be in our best interest to have. So there's a whole range of blessings and benefits that we see as coming from the Garden of Eden, for example, the Tree of Life, which would sustain our ongoing existence. And God in his wisdom determined that it would not be in our best interest to maintain access to the Tree of Life, otherwise he would grant it to us if we believe that he is the God who is true to his word, and his word says that he doesn't let us have anything that is not in our best interest to have. And he gives us everything that is in our best interest to have. So when Adam and Eve come out of the garden and they maintain their connection with God through the Sabbath and they maintain their connection with each other through marriage, we can assume that there is some benefit in maintaining those things in our day-to-day lives, even in the midst of a sinful world. And I would venture to say that the reason why we maintain the Sabbath is because it's beneficial to maintain focus on spiritual things. And the reason why it's beneficial to have marriage is that it's it's beneficial to our focus on uh, self-sacrifice sacrificing love and learning how to demonstrate that. And those of us who are married will know for sure that there is no faster way to learn the patience of self-sacrificing love than in a marriage where you are put in very close connection with somebody else who is also as much as you are a selfish creature. So it's only fitting that the devil would be attacking this element of God's kingdom, the idea of the true marriage, because this is the thing that assists people in uh, becoming more heavenly minded becoming more eligible to be citizens of heaven. And not only that, but it also was designed to give us a foretaste of heaven I mean, the the bliss of a heavenly marriage is something that is hard to come by these days but something that demonstrates the atmosphere of heaven, where two people experience the, the enjoyment that comes from being served by somebody, being loved by somebody and even more to the fact, as Jesus says, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, they learn the lessons of being the one that provides for somebody else, learning to love somebody else, and in that perfect synergy of a marriage relationship and the biblical standard of things, they can experience that. And like every one of God's good gifts entrusted to the keeping of humanity, marriage has been perverted by sin, but it is the purpose of the gospel to restore its purity and beauty. And that last quote was from the Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 63 and 64. Moving on to Thursday's lesson, the creation, the fall, and the cross. I like to think of this in very simplistic terms when I think of the creation and then the fall and then the cross. And then we'd be remiss without suggesting the, the recreation that comes from the cross. I look at it kind of like a graph and, and the the graph starts out quite high but then takes a huge dip which is where the fall takes place and at the very bottom of the fall is the cross and then as the cross is, is taken a hold of as the cross is imbued into somebody's life or, or the, the person takes a hold of it it essentially lifts the line up to the top end of the graph and even higher than where it was before because of what it is that uh, we experience through redemption My father once put it like this that, you know, in the perfect world, in heaven and on the perfect earth, there was no experience of the entirety of God's character until sin entered the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that sin was something that God uh, designed to be an inherent part of his universe, but there's one aspect of his character that could not be demonstrated without somebody falling away, without some form of uh, sin coming into the existence, and that aspect of God's character is mercy. There is no way for anyone in the perfect universe, the perfect world, to have experienced mercy except if they had done something wrong by God. And so it's not until we have the fall that we can truly understand what God's mercy looks like. And then we have a better picture of who God is. Now, I'm not saying, once again, just to reiterate, that I'm not saying that that it is a good thing that sin entered the world. But now that sin has entered the world and we've seen what God is prepared to do at the lengths that he's prepared to go to, we can better grasp, better understand what God's character is like. Because now we see how far he's prepared to go. To bring us back to where we had fallen from. And he, like I said, takes us even beyond that. So that the graph goes higher than where it was when we were first created. I remember that hymn that says, holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I intend to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing salvation story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. It's not until we experience that wholeheartedly for ourselves that we can truly begin to recognize what it is that has been done on our behalf. And the, 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 the depths of God's character has demonstrated when people fall away from him and from relationship with him. Now, one thing that was really powerful that I think the lesson brought out in this topic of creation, the fall and the cross, is the comparison between the evolutionary perspective and that of the theistic perspective. So the evolutionary perspective that says that there has been millions of years that has been uh, of, 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 of natural selection, life and death and life and death and life and death, and slowly but surely those adaptions taking place has led to where we are right now. But the fundamental problem with that, when we try and marry that up with the theistic perspective of God creating over millions of years, or God creating over indefinite periods of time, is that the idea of God's perfect world is undermined, because God's perfect world says that there is no death, no suffering, no pain, no dying, and and, and nothing to um, uh, cause tears. But the evolutionary perspective would suggest that that is the case that God, that is the way that God operates and that God desires death to be present for 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 the natural process of things to take place and for for uh, the eventual development of humanity as we know it today furthermore if we were to attempt to try and marry those two concepts up The the whole idea of the wages of sin as death, as articulated in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, is no longer applicable because it suggests that, no, God actually operates through the process of death and that death is necessary and has been necessary before sin. So there is just no possible way of actually marrying these two concepts together in the essence of their foundation. One that says that death is necessary for the progeneration of life and the other says that death is only the result of evil and that it's a necessary result but that Christ suffered the penalty. If there is no no, no, uh, penalty for sin, if death is not the penalty for sin, then Christ did not need to die. And if Christ did not need to die, then we don't have salvation. If we don't have salvation, well, it shows that there was probably no need for salvation, in which case we are born in sin and shall ever remain in sin. And that's just the way things were supposed to be. This is where the quote from Ellen White comes in with such force when it says in the book, That I May Know Him, page 289, Now if the law of God could have been changed and altered to meet man in his fallen condition, then Adam would have been pardoned and retained his home in Eden. But the penalty of transgression was death, and Christ became man's substitute and surety. Then was the time, could the law of God have been changed, to have made this change and retained Christ in the heavenly courts, that the immense sacrifice made to save fallen fallen humanity might have been avoided. But no, the Lord of God was changeless in its character and therefore Christ gave himself a sacrifice in behalf of fallen men and Adam lost Eden, this place, with all his posterity upon probation. This is the, the reality. God's law could not be abrogated or changed. The reality is that the Sabbath, which is being attacked which signifies God being the creator and us being the created. Marriage, which is also being attacked and 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 causes people to uh, question and uh, to minimize or reduce the value of God's holy law. All of these things lead only to perdition, and the eventual results can only be truly understood in looking at the cross. When we take away from what God has set up for us to uphold, It is for our best interest to uphold those things. When we take away from them, the inevitable result is always downward. The inevitable result is always death. The inevitable result is always destruction when followed to its ends degree. So with that in mind, let's keep our focus on God as the creator, on us as his created, and on developing self-sacrificial love in our marriages and in our relationships with others in their appropriate context. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and we'll catch you again next week.